I'm Ada Yee. I'm Erica Senior. I'm Nick Weiler. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is H. Craig Heller, a professor of biology and the co-director of the Stanford Center for Down Syndrome Research. Thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, especially with a cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. So can you tell us what it is and how to make it? Wow. Well, this is a Manhattan, the ingredients for a Manhattan. And, of course, most people uh, measure things very carefully. I don't. <laughs> uh, we have here a very good bourbon, a bullet, and I will pour what is a considerable dollop in a glass and then add uh, some vermouth, and it depends on how sweet you like your Manhattan. I, I sort of like it medium sweet, so maybe half as much vermouth as, as the bourbon. And then you could add a couple uh, shakes of bitters if, if you like, uh, but uh, an important ingredient is a maraschino cherry, mm. and I always add a little bit of the cherry juice as well. It gives it a nice color. Oh, yeah. So... It's good to have a Manhattan have that nice. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. This is actually pretty good. I've, you know, I never really liked whiskey and start, until we started doing this show. <laughs> now I've, I've come to enjoy it quite a lot. So. Well, you know the connection between bourbon and scotch? I do not. Most scotch is aged in bourbon barrels because for bourbon, the tradition is you only use a barrel once. And then, of course, the Scots being a little bit pinch penny, <laughs> they take the bourbon barrels or sherry barrels uh, from France or from Spain, and and then they use that to age their scotch. So most of our scotch is really just secondhand bourbon. <laughs> yes. Do you have a favorite bourbon or a favorite scotch? Well, yeah, I like the the scotches which are very peaty. So I always say if it doesn't taste like a barnyard, it's not a good scotch. <laughs> so Laphroaig, Lagavulin, they're, they're very good. Uh, for bourbons, uh, there are quite a few good ones. Uh, and I think just for Manhattans, some of the, uh, what is it, Jack? Uh, Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels, mm -hmm. yeah, is, is, is just fine. But Maker's Mark, that's a very good bourbon. Mm -hmm. So your lab has studied sleep for many years now. Um, so what exactly is sleep on a physiological level? Uh, what happens to the body, particularly to the brain, when an animal sleeps? Well, sleep is really a state of existence. Uh, we spend one-third of our lives asleep. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable that we don't know why. Yeah. Uh, but clearly it's for restoring the brain because you can rest the body with quiet wakefulness, mm -hmm. but you can't restore the brain. Now, what that restore, restoration amounts to, we really don't know. Uh, one of the very popular areas of investigation right now is that it has to do with learning and memory. But physiologically, what sleep is, is essentially taking the central processing unit offline for maintenance. Mm -hmm. And for mammals, sleep exists in two different states, non-REM sleep and REM sleep. We spend about 80% of our time in non-REM, 20% in REM. And these are very, very different states electrophysiologically. Mm -hmm. During non-REM sleep, the cortex is severely hyperpolarized, and it just has bursts of action potentials, mostly due to calcium channels that are uh, activated by hyperpolarization, and this generates the slow waves in the EEG, which characterizes what's called slow-wave sleep. Mm -hmm. So basically, activity in the cortex is being suppressed actively? Well, there is a lot of activity going on, 
but mm -hmm. it's activity of a particular nature. So we think now that information that is being consolidated into long-term memory is being transferred and processed during this state. And uh, there's a lot of work now on the various electrical oscillations, the potentials that are associated with these processes of, of uh, memory consolidation. Mm -hmm. And then periodically we leave non-REM sleep to go into REM sleep. During REM sleep, the cortex is reactivated. And that's why we have dreams, why mm -hmm. we have no vivid dreams. But to keep from acting out our dreams, the output of the brain is suppressed. So all of our motor neurons are hyperpolarized. And if uh, there, there are REM behavior disorders in which the hyperpolarization or the inhibition wears off before the REM state ends and people will act out their dreams and they mm -hmm. can damage themselves and, and damage other people as well. Do we know why we have to go into this more active state? Well, we don't. Hmm. Uh, of course, there are lots of theories that come from Freudian psychiatry that are probably nonsense. Hmm. Uh, because for, for a very simple reason, if you want to suppose that REM sleep is to act out your Freudian problems and issues, you'd have to assume that cows and horses and other things have similar Freudian problems because we have the same percentage of, of, of REM sleep to non-REM sleep. Well, that guy stole my grass when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the best guess is, uh, and this is something that's come from our research, and that is that during wakefulness, we generate a need for non-REM sleep. We don't know exactly what it is, mm -hmm. but it is definitely a need that builds up in proportion to the amount of time you've been awake. Mm -hmm. And then you discharge that need through some process that takes place during non-REM sleep. But that expression of non-REM sleep generates another imbalance, which has to be corrected by reactivating the brain, reactivating the cortex, I should say, and then allowing that process to play out. And mm -hmm. the best evidence for this is that if we deprive an animal of REM sleep, or a human, this has been done in humans as well, what you do is you generate in the animal the need for REM sleep, and it interrupts non-REM sleep more frequently. So mm -hmm. the animal's constantly trying to get into REM. And then once it has a bout of REM, it can go back into non-REM for a long period of time. So uh, that's at least some evidence that indicates that REM is serving a need that's generated by non-REM. So it seems, so it sounds like you're saying that, that wakefulness is damaging in a way that is corrected by non-REM sleep and non-REM is damaging in a way that is corrected by, by REM. I don't know if damaging is the right word. Well, it, it, these are homeostatic processes. They're, they're regulated. And we don't know exactly what, there are various theories. We, we worked for a number of years on the theory that we exhaust our brain energy reserves during wakefulness. And this may be true. It's probably not the only uh, function of, of non-REM sleep. But since the major signal, the major molecular signal for the intensity of non-REM sleep is adenosine, mm. that sort of suggests energy, right? <clears throat> so the only energy reserve the brain has is glycogen. If it exceeds the capacity of the blood to supply glucose, it breaks down its glycogen. And the neurotransmitters, the neuromodulators that are associated with wakefulness, activate the enzymes of glycogenolysis. So it is likely that cells or the glia are giving up their glycogen during wake, and then that has to be restored during sleep. Hmm. So that's one idea. Another idea, which is current right now, is that during wakefulness, we generate a lot of new synapses because we're accumulating new information. Mm -hmm. And 
there is simply a matter of synaptic space. There's a matter of the energy of maintaining all of these synapses so that during sleep what we do is we down-regulate the synaptic connections so that we're essentially cleaning out the, th the information we don't need. Mm -hmm. Synaptic downscaling is what it's called. Now, there's also evidence against that because there are many processes in which synapses are, con are built during mm -hmm. sleep. So, for example, the classical studies of monocular deprivation and the development of the connections in the occipital cortex. When kittens are monocularly deprived and you look at the changes that occur in the connectivity in the visual cortex, those changes don't occur unless the animal is allowed to sleep. So that's one example of... But do they occur during sleep? Yes, they, they occur during sleep. So those two, those two ideas seem a little bit at odds with each other. The idea that when you sleep, you're resting the brain, but at the same time, you're consolidating memory, you're building new synapses. You're, the brain seems very, very busy during that time. That's right. So we say that non-REM sleep is a quiescent brain in an active body because the skeletal muscles are not totally inactivated. Mm -hmm. during. And, but REM sleep is an active brain in a paralyzed body. So all of this sort of memory consolidation, you don't consider this like a primary brain activity or like taking primary sources from the brain? So I'm just I'm just a little bit confused about like the idea that the brain needs to rest and needs to build up its its resources that it's spent during wakefulness, but at the same time it's doing all of this other stuff which presumably also requires energy. Exactly. So there are conflicts in ideas or theories, but it, it I think it's reasonable to think that sleep is doing more than one thing. Mm -hmm. So sleep is probably doing a number of different physiological and neurophysiological tasks. But it may well be also that the transfer of information from short-term to long-term memory doesn't require the same sorts of, of peaks of energy demand that you have during wakeful experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so there are lots of ex uh, studies now in which an individual would be asked to do a task with, let's say, the non-dominant hand. So learn a skill with a non-dominant hand. And then look at where the slow wave activities occur during subsequent sleep. And the slow wave activities are most intense over the motor cortex associated with the non-dominant hand. Hmm. And then if you do the subsequent correlation of the intensity of that slow wave activity and improvement in performance the next day, it's a positive relationship. So the the actual amount of slow waves, the power of the slow waves yes. in the motor area is related to the task that they learned during the night? Is, is related to the intensity of the effort and then uh, is also related to the improvement performance the, the next day. Oh, that's really interesting. What do you think about this notion that, um, I think this comes from, from Giulio Tononi about that, micro-sleeps. I, I was essentially talking about Giulio Tononi with the synaptic downscaling hypothesis, Tononian. Right. And Sorelli, that's their 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 ideas. But there was something um, I don't know if I don't actually know if this is has been published about um, being able to see um, what looks like a very a small part of the brain um, going into sleep very briefly, which is associated with actual failures on so right. certain types of tasks. As Lo if, local sleep. Local sleep is if yeah, the part of the brain is falling asleep. Yeah, and that's similar to what I just told you about with a part of the brain having more intense sleep after activity. And the kinds of experiments that showed the local sleep would, for example, in a in a rat, would stimulate one particular whisker so or a group of whiskers so that you're activating a particular whisker barrel uh, in the somatosensory cortex, and you see then the increased slow wave activity in that particular part of the brain. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, and this occurs, I mean, I'm sure maybe you've experienced a micro-sleep. Oh, yes. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're all of a sudden, you're not there, and then you come back. <laughs> and this is also one of the problems that plagues uh, human sleep studies with sleep deprivation, because the slow-wave activity can creep in mm -hmm. to the wakeful EEG. And there, if you're doing a high-density array EEG, you can see the slow-wave activity creeping in in different locations when people are subjected to sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before that we that most of the of our sleep is the slow wave non REM mm -hmm. sleep. Non -REM so sleep. Are, yeah, so is there um, are there individuals who the balance is is skewed, so they have a significantly larger portion of their sleep as REM sleep, and then what are the consequences of that? Um, I really don't think so. Okay. Uh, I you know there of course there's variance uh -huh. in, in any measure like this. Uh, the big variance is the amount of sleep that people have, but in general. Uh, REM sleep is 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 about twenty to twenty five percent of total sleep time, mm -hmm. and there there's variance around that. And, and does that shift with your schedule? So if you know for five days in a row, I only allow myself four yeah. hours of sleep, is it going to shift? Yes. Uh, if you have suffered sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. you are likely in your first night you will see more time spent in REM, mm -hmm. but. What you're seeing with your non-REM is more intense sleep. So non-REM sleep deprivation is paid back by increasing the intensity of the slow wave activity, whereas REM sleep is predominantly paid back in time. Mm -hmm. But when you are, have been severely sleep deprived, uh, your, your REM sleep restoration or, or recovery seems to push aside a little bit the, the non-REM. So we we talked before about you know the horse horse dreams and cow dreams. Do do we know of animals that don't that don't do this that don't have this REM sleep? Well, we don't. Um, mammals. Uh, part of the problem in asking the question, "Do all animals sleep?" is that we don't have a, an easy definition for sleep. Hmm. So we can certainly say that animals have cycles of rest and 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 activity. Okay. But whether that rest in all animals, let's say an earthworm, whether that is the equivalent of sleep, we don't know because we don't have a physiological, neurophysiological definition of sleep. In mammals and birds, we can use cortical EEG as our defining principles. But more and more, uh, we're beginning to see studies on invertebrates, for example, and certainly now Drosophila mm -hmm. are seen as being animals that sleep. And and they, their sleep behavior follows the same sort of uh, patterns that, that we do. If, we, if you deprive a drosophila of sleep, it has longer sleep periods. If it responds to caffeine in, in similar ways that we do. <laughs> so, so They become dependent and need it every morning. Right, right. <laughs> right. So I think it's probably true that, that most complex animals have to take their nervous systems offline periodically. Mm -hmm. so, so you just mentioned caffeine. So what... What what effect does having taking stimulants stimulants in order to sleep less have on the brain? Like, what are you? What kind of state are you putting your brain in when you do that? Well, caffeine, of course, is uh, blocks the adenosine receptor. Mm -hmm. So I uh, just told you that adenosine is the major signaling molecule that determines or controls the intensity of of non REM sleep, and caffeine is blocking that uh, that that receptor. And adenosine it comes from 
um, sort of a byproduct of energy metabolism, right? Right. So if you break down your ATP for energy, you end up with ADP, mm -hmm. okay? And then uh, if you have lots of ADP, you can scavenge it to make an ATP and an AMP and throw away the adenosine. Mm -hmm. So in all tissues, uh, when they're energy compromised, they release adenosine. Now in the periphery, in muscle tissue, what that does is it causes dilation of blood vessels so that you increase the blood supply to the muscle. So yeah, there's a close association between adenosine and uh, energy metabolism. I really, I think that's, it's so neat because a lot of the time in neuroscience, we think of these signaling molecules almost as the neurotransmitters as being intentional signals in a sense that a nerve cell is trying to signal some information to another. Mm -hmm. And with this adenosine, it's, it's a byproduct. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, a sign of, you know, that you're using up energy and that's been used by the brain and used by muscles to right. Figure out how to respond to that problem. Right. Now, it may well be that the adenosine has been co opted as a signal uh, because uh, the adenosine that is involved in these sleep processes is primarily coming from the glia. And the glia are uh, essentially uh, putting out adenosine. Do you know why we experience sort of the rebound exhaustion when you um, have, take, you know, you drink some coffee and then what, as, it, as it wears off, it suddenly just really overpowers you with, with tiredness? Well, you know, being awake is like taking out of your savings account. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you may stop spending for a little while, but but your balance doesn't go back up unless you put in another deposit. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way with sleep. Uh, you accumulate a sleep deficit. So there's some very interesting studies which have been done recently in which people have been put on a restricted sleep schedule, like four hours of sleep a night. Mm -hmm. And you sh you can see that the steady decline in their performance in their uh, what's called a, a PBT test, which is a, a, a test in which you know you get a sound and you have to push a button. Very simple. So it's whether or not you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. And the performance in that test goes down steadily with days of restricted sleep. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. They allowed individuals then to have recovery sleep for several days. And you increase your sleep time, you increase the intensity of your non-REM activity, and your performance goes back up, mm -hmm. okay? But then they put them right back on the restricted sleep schedule, and immediately, immediately the performance went down to the levels that were seen at the end of the previous. So it's like, you know, you didn't fully recover. Uh -huh. you, you, you certainly paid back your sleep debt, but still there was a deficit that, that was remaining. Uh, I don't know how to interpret that. I don't know what the physiological mechanisms are, but it, it tells us that, indeed, uh, restricted sleep is not a good thing. So is it possible to ever re pay back that, that oh, deficit? Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. With, it would just take time. more more yeah. time. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So then if it was possible to take a pill that would put you in very intense, deep, mm. non-REM sleep, and you would only have to then sleep for, like, two hours, that would not be good or would it still be benefit like would you be in this this deficit state i think that's a really good question and the experiments have not been done okay okay there are ways of inducing a sleep light state which are not the same as sleep so mm -hmm. you know the typical sleep pills benzodiazepines uh, do not produce a normal sleep and therefore they generate problems of dependency and uh, amnesia and, and so forth uh, where if you could develop a a drug that mimic normal sleep, could you intensify sleep? Could you essentially get you know, eight hour, the value of eight hours of sleep in four hours? 
that's a question that's still open, mm. and uh, it you know it's entirely possible. What do you do to uh, to safeguard your sleep? Do you make sure that I mean, having studied sleep for for a long time, I mean, you are very aware of how important it is to your functioning. But you know, in a in I a, give it high priority. Yeah. <laughs> so it's main, tough. I mean, it's tough for all of us in sort of a high stress, right. you know, high achieving environment to make sure that sleep stays a priority. No, we we think of all sorts of aspects of hygiene in our lives, and there is sleep hygiene as well. Hmm. And there are all sorts of things you can do to improve your sleep. Uh, for example, maintain a normal bedtime. Mm-hmm. Don't don't think of this as something that you just do when you have free time. Uh, you know, there's a time you go to bed just like there's a time you go to work, right? And then other things, uh, you don't allow your work environment to encroach into your your sleeping environment. Uh, you don't have your your desk and computer and your cell phone and so forth right next to your bed. Um, and then set aside some time to relax and sort of disengage from the normal daily activities uh, prior to, to going to sleep. Hmm. I violate all of those. That's horrible. <laughs> and, and right. That's our, that's our, our sleep-deprived society. <laughs> How bad is sleep deprivation in our society? I don't know if you've been involved in a lot of the epidemiology of sleep deprivation. I haven't been involved, but of course I, I know a little bit about it. Um, and um, we are a sleep-deprived society, that's for sure. Mm. We have a 24-hour society, and we think that sleep is, is a luxury, that when we get a chance to do it, maybe we'll do it. But it's not something that's that's absolutely essential, like eating, for example. Right. But it is. If you do experiments of sleep deprivation, this was done some years ago and could never be done today, I'm sure, because of animal uh, rights considerations. But uh, rats were deprived of sleep uh, in a way that was um, you know, so, sort of considered not traumatic because the control animals received the same stimulation, but the experimental animals received the stimulation whenever they went to sleep, so they were deprived of sleep. Mm-hmm. And the control animals could sleep whenever the other animals were awake, right? Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is these were rats, and the sleep-deprived animals died within a period of maybe two weeks. Oh, and gosh. this was sooner than they would have died from food deprivation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But the continuation of that study is nobody could actually define or discover exactly why they died. Everything mm-hmm. went to pot. And the cardiovascular system went to pot, their immune system went to pot, their gastrointestinal system went to pot. All sorts of uh, problems occurred. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the body just, <clears throat> just shut down somehow. And Right. What about naps? There are societies where a nap, yeah. mandatory nap yeah. is... Uh, well, you know, that's, that's really Preschool. interesting. <laughs> Preschool. Preschool. Yeah, because I know so many people that take it, and I feel like those people are smarter than I do. <laughs> I... I I think that's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. We definitely know that sleep is essential for cognitive function. Mm-hmm. And with people that have short sleep, a nap can possibly benefit cognitive function. Mm-hmm. But work in our lab right now is looking at the relationship between sleep, biological rhythms, and learning and memory. And what we find is that there is a circadian rhythm, of learning and memory. There are times of day when you can learn better than at other times. And sleep is absolutely essential for memory consolidation, but it seems to have to occur at a particular circadian phase. So we're doing experiments now on animals in which we're disassociating the biological rhythm with with sleep and and 
processes and learning in memory. And there's a really uh, tight relationship. So I have to back up and, and tell you a little bit about some of our work on Down syndrome. Mm, please. Mm -hmm. uh, a Down syndrome is characterized by severe learning disability, right? And we have found that this learning disability is largely due to over-inhibition in the brain. Mm -hmm. So that very simply, and this came from a, a, a hypothesis from a graduate student, and he thought this was a good idea, and he pursued it, Fabian Fernandez, uh, who graduated from the neuroscience program. Um, he said, well, you know, this learning disability, perhaps it's due to over-inhibition. So he started using GABA antagonists. GABA is the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And lo and behold, in the Down syndrome animals, the learning, boom, came back. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then carrying this forward, we were interested in seeing whether or not this was acting through effects on sleep or effects on circadian rhythms or neither. And what we found was that if we gave, and here's the interesting thing about these experiments, if he gave the drug for a two-week period, okay, the animals were then normal for months. So this is not a direct drug effect. This is a drug that's having an effect on how the brain works, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a long-lasting effect, right? So we were interested in seeing did it change their sleep patterns, that changed their circadian rhythms, and the first thing we studied was the circadian rhythms, and and we were disappointed in finding out that the Down syndrome animals actually had better circadian rhythms, and that puzzled us for a while. What what makes a circadian rhythm better than to be, uh, you know, if you if you take a rhythm and you you sort of do a an analysis of how sharp the rhythm is, in other words, how precise it is. Uh, does it do the same thing at the same phase mm -hmm. uh, every day? The, the 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 patterns of behavior in the Down syndrome animals were cleaner. Uh, we say in, in periodogram analysis had higher power. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're more consistent on a day-to-day -day basis. They're more consistent on a day-to-day -day okay. basis. They had more extreme changes from... Mm -hmm. And that disappointed us, okay? Uh, because we were thinking, oh, well, this could be uh, an abnormality of circadian rhythms, and they have better circadian rhythms. So then we looked at sleep, and we found out, the, yes, there, there were a number of, of differences in these animals in their sleep characteristics, but nothing we could really put our finger on and say, yeah, this is the smoking gun. Mm -hmm. So then what we did is we discovered that uh, applying the drug at the wrong circadian phase had no effect whatsoever. Really? So this led to the discovery that we had to suppress the neural inhibition, but we had to suppress it specifically during the sleep phase hmm. of the animals. Okay, And this then led to the question of what is the effect of sleep on learning and memory? Mm -hmm. And to make a long story short, what we found is really quite remarkable. And that is that a function of the circadian rhythm and specifically a part of the brain, which is the circadian pacemaker, it's called the, the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, a major function appears to be suppressing neuroplasticity. And suppressing neuroplasticity during this process of memory consolidation. When mm -hmm. short-term memory is being transferred from, let's say, hippocampal circuits to cortical circuits, you don't want those transcripts open to modification. Mm -hmm. So it looks as if the circadian system is dampening neuroplasticity to protect these neuro these these uh, these uh, memory transcripts. Mm -hmm. Now we've subsequently found that if we take these animals that are learning have learning problems, 
and we lesion the SCN. It, mm -hmm. it, it restores the learning. Huh. That's really interesting. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's looking like we have a totally new function of the circadian system uh -huh. that, that supports the process of memory transfer, memory consolidation. So is the idea then in, so if you lesion the, the SCN, then it restores their learning capabilities. So then the idea then is that there's too much inhibition, sort of tonic inhibition, uh, caused by the SCN throughout the day that's right. preventing them from forming these right. long-term memories. Right. So that then ex fits with the the more extreme circadian rhythms or the stronger circadian rhythms in the Down syndrome animals. Mm -hmm. right. They had more inhibition during the um, during the sleep phase. So then what, what would be the consequence of, maybe sort of a negative consequence of doing that lesion, though? If there's no inhibition, <laughs> oh, it's, then... It's not a therapy. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I'm just saying, like, if if the normal function is to suppress it so that you can form the long-term right. memories, then right. if you lesion it completely, then there's going to be sort of like cross-wiring. Yeah. Uh -huh. we, we, we don't know. I see. We don't know. So we have another animal system that we use, and this is uh, the work of Bud Ruby in my lab. These are Siberian hamsters. And Siberian hamsters come from very far north, mm -hmm. right? So they are nocturnal animals, and they breed in the spring and the summer. So they are breeding, and they therefore have to feed their young when the nights are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. So these animals in nature would have to break free from their circadian rhythms. Okay. So in the lab, if we give these animals one long day, they will become arrhythmic totally arrhythmic for the rest of their lives. Wow. Okay? And once they're arrhythmic, they can no longer learn. And what we find is that the genes in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the so-called clock genes, rather than being expressed in a rhythmic fashion, they mm -hmm. have continuous levels of expression. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it looks as if what's happening in these animals that are arrhythmic is the SCN has a continuous output rather than a cycling output. And the possibility is that what that output is doing is suppressing the ability, uh, suppressing neuroplasticity uh, long term. Mm -hmm. Now, with these animals, we can also restore their learning by antagonizing the GABA uh, activity, and we can restore their learning by lesioning their SCN. Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm so I'm I'm a little confused by this suppression of suppression of plasticity during learning. Um, if if the um, if plasticity is is suppressed, how how are the short-term memories getting transferred into long-term memories? That's a really good question. And obviously, there has to be some aspects of plasticity which are retained. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is, at this early stage in this uh, discovery process, we're, we're doing a global inhibition, mm -hmm. uh, a dampening of inhibition. We're doing a global antagonism of GABAergic activity. Now, it may well be possible that we can make that a lot more specific if we knew which circuits uh, were critical, if we knew that it was hippocampal circuits or we knew that it was uh, cortical circuits or what have you. That, and, and different circuits, of course, have different have GABA receptors with different characteristics, different subunit compositions. If we could possibly uh, in, uh, modify or, or, or decrease the activity in some of those circuits, it might restore learning without having any global Hmm. Uh, consequences. But so far, it looks as if even with our global approach, uh, 
we're having a beneficial effect on these animals. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. I wonder, I mean, so we you talked a little bit earlier about the fact that um, you could see different intensities of mm-hmm. slow-wave sleep in different mm-hmm. areas depending on what, mm-hmm. um, I guess you could say, the brain is trying to learn. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, this this notion that somehow sleep sleep is not maybe just a, a global state, but it's there are specifically targeted events going on where particular parts of the brain are learning different things. It's a very it's a very interesting idea. It is, and uh, we do know that uh, essentially uh, with these animals, we are looking at one particular form of memory. We're looking at declarative memory, uh, a equivalent of declarative memory or spatial memory, uh, hippocampal-related uh, memories. Uh, we can't say anything about uh, other types of memory at this particular particular point. Right. Mm-hmm. So these are all the types of memory of you know things that occur to you Procedural in your life. Procedural memory yeah, right. and so forth. But maybe not you know learning to play the piano or that kind of thing. That, that, yeah, that may well be. And it may well be that in these individuals, Down syndrome individuals, procedural memories uh, are easier to, to create than, mm. than declarative memories. We don't know. So maybe this is just wish- wishful thinking, but I, I don't know, just sort of personally, it sort of feels like humans are a bit more flexible as far as their circadian rhythm affecting learning to a significant degree. I mean, I think all of us have had the experience of like, pulling an all-nighter or studying for an exam or something like that. And maybe you don't remember all the specific details two years later, but you certainly usually remember enough to pass the test the next day or whatever. So, it's called short-term memory. Short-term memory, <laughs> right. Okay. So. Or, or I guess if, if you're a psychologist, it's in, intermediate-term memory. So you can, you no, can, pull, you can stuff all, it all in your brain. You can stuff it all in, but it's not going to stay there it's for very long. It's not going to stay there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Certainly pulling all-nighters are not a great idea. Right, yeah. They're, they're not a great so idea. So then when, when is the best time for for someone to learn something? And then when should they sleep in relation to when they learn that? Well, the one thing about circadian rhythms in people is that they also have a lot of variability. So uh-huh. some individuals are larks, some individuals are owls. You know, some people get up early in the morning and, and they're, they are their best out. The morning hours are their best hours. Other people, you know, are, stay up late at night and, mm-hmm. and those are their best hours. Mm-hmm. So there's no one size fits all. Um, but the bottom line is that whatever your circadian pattern is, uh, sleep is, is essential. And mm-hmm. it may be that your sleep occurs. So, for example, for me, I cannot sleep once the sun comes up. You know, when it's light, I can no longer sleep. So mm-hmm. when I when I go to Europe and they have these heavy curtains and shades over the windows, oh, my God, I can sleep <laughs> <laughs> late into the morning, but but not at home. And there are other people, it you know, doesn't matter at all. They can sleep till noon and mm-hmm. uh, it d- doesn't bother them. So whatever your sleep pattern is, that's partially a function of the characteristics of your circadian system. Uh, and the circadian system and sleep are working together. Mm-hmm. Is there like an optimal circadian? Is there a way to optimize your circadian rhythm if, you know? Your circadian rhythm is an endogenous rhythm, uh-huh. okay? And uh, the only way you can optimize it is to see light at the natural times of day that you should see light. So mm-hmm. one of the concerns of modern society is that using computers late at night uh, is altering our circadian patterns because computers are very rich in blue light and blue light is a uh, is is particularly important for phase shifting the circadian rhythm so 
the, the, the effect of light on the circadian rhythm is not through our visual receptors. It's through ganglion cells in the retina that have a photoreceptor called melanopsin. Mm -hmm. And it's predominantly sensitive or its absorption peak is in the blue. So blue light has a powerful effect on our circadian uh, systems. Now, if you're exposed to really bright light, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter. But if, if you're exposed to, to dim light, the blue frequencies are going to have a bigger effect than, than others. So you know, people playing computer games and doing their email just before going to bed, that is something that's going to potentially disrupt their circadian system. Hmm. So, Wait, uh, so the, is the blue light something that actually makes sense with, with the way light looks in the natural world? Or? Well, um, that's a good question. I, I don't know what the spectral profile of light would be at dawn or dusk, but certainly if you think about what happens during dawn or dusk, the, the last, uh, or, or, or the, at dusk anyway, the last frequencies you see are blue. Mm -hmm. uh, in the morning, the earliest frequencies you'd see would be predominantly blue. So uh, whether or not that has a, an evolutionary significance, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But so, so light right before bed sort of convinces your circadian system that, you know, it's the middle of summer and it's, you know, you're... Right can stay up later and right so you, you know back. lots of people take melatonin to to get over jet lag and what melatonin does is it simulates the onset of dark mm -hmm. because normally when it gets dark our pineal releases melatonin and that has a feedback effect on the clock on the the circadian pacemaker so if we see bright light in the middle of the night that shuts off the melatonin signal so this is the mechanism of photoperiodicity. Animals that, you know, they come into reproductive condition at a particular time of year, they measure the length of the night by the duration of the melatonin uh, pulse that, that they're receiving. And when we see light in the middle of the night, it disrupts that, that signal. Now, how important this is in humans, we can't say. But humans have learned to use melatonin is probably the biggest uncontrolled clinical study that's ever been done. They've learned to use, <laughs> use melatonin that they buy in health food stores to simulate the onset of dark and therefore potentiate sleep when they uh, travel across time zones. It's pretty effective. You think? Uh, I think it's, data now has shown that it's effective in about 50% of the population. <laughs> but the other question the placebo is placebo could you, be pretty effective. The, yeah. yeah, right. right, right, right. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. I've never tried it. Yeah. I'm worried about growing antlers. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't realize that was a side effect. I didn't, I didn't read the bottle closely enough, I guess. So um, in 2011, you published a paper looking at hibernation in Alaskan black bears. Um, so first, maybe can you tell us about how those experiments were carried out? So did you actually go to Alaska and find hibernating bears? Or? And, and can you poke a hibernating okay. bear? <laughs> yeah, happens? and they respond. <laughs> Yeah, hibernation is something that interested me for a very long time, and it goes back to my days in graduate school. <clears throat> when I went to graduate school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. So my first week when I was there, I found out that if you were an ecology evolution student, you could go anywhere you wanted in the summer to do field work. Uh, me, uh, I'll do that. <laughs> very so when I was in graduate school, I spent every summer in the Sierra Nevada, and I studied animals during the summer that in the winter hibernated. So that led me to be interested in questions of hibernation. Mm -hmm. uh, and the big question back then was whether hibernators were sort of advanced in their 
regulatory processes or were they primitive like reptiles? You know, did they just give up thermoregulation because they couldn't handle the problem that they were facing? So what we studied was... They hadn't invented long underwear was really right. their issue. <laughs> so we studied how the brain regulates body temperature. And the brain regulates body temperature through temperature sensitivity of the hypothalamus. It's a thermostat. There's a thermostat in the brain just like there's a clock in the brain. And if you cool that thermostat in a normal mammal, it increases its heat production. If you heat warm that thermostat, it decreases its uh, heat production, increases its heat loss. So what we found was that in the hibernators, and these are small hibernators, ground squirrels, that they actually had a variable thermostat. They reset the thermostat to very low levels to enter hibernation. Mm -hmm. And throughout the hibernation season, they would periodically come back up to normal mammalian body temperature and then go back down again. So the, the, the adaptive significance was obvious. This was turning down the thermostat to save energy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, why did they come back up periodically? Uh, that was a question that, that was never resolved. Uh, and uh, whether or not this was a natural adaptation that evolved from <clears throat> sleep, for mm -hmm. example. So in subsequent work, we showed in the small animals that, yes, hibernation was an extension of sleep, that uh, essentially during sleep, you lower your setting on your thermostat, and this is exaggerated in the hibernators. But then when they go into hibernation, their EEG activity, their brain activity, is very altered. So the hypothesis was that periodically they must have to come out of hibernation to restore whatever brain processes are, are essential. Mm -hmm. So actually, I had a graduate student several years ago, uh, Christina van der Rohe, and she picked up this question, and she studied uh, what happens to dendritic structure during a bout of hibernation. She found out that when one of these animals goes into a bout of hibernation, it loses about 25% of its brain structure. Oh, wow. 25% of its dendritic arborization is gone. 25% of the synapses are gone. Mm -hmm. And then when they come out of this bout of hibernation seven or eight days later, it all comes back in three or four hours. How does oh. it do that? It's the most incredible, <laughs> incredible uh, uh, response. Because the brain uh, goes through a lot of work to set up these very specific conditions <laughs> exactly. to just throw 25% of it yes. away. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that we found was that, which, what Christina found was that uh, the proteins that are associated, and this would inter in interest you, the proteins that are associated with these synapses are not degraded. They're just taken back into a cytoplasmic pool. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not protein synthesis that's necessary for this recovery. They're taking the proteins that are required for the synaptic structure, they're taking them out of the cytoplasmic pool and, and rebuilding the dendrites and the synapses and so forth. So, so they're, they're sort of putting everything in the drawers of like the dresser and then right. they're right there right when you need them again. Right. Mm -hmm. So but how do they know where to put them? <laughs> that's a really good. And what do they remember? You know, uh -huh. uh, what, yeah, does a ground squirrel know where it, where it hit its nuts? Well, then... it, it it remembers that it's a ground squirrel. Okay. <laughs> that's good. It, it, it remembers its close relatives. Uh, it uh, probably does not remember um, a lot of other things. But wow. you know, this is a question that's this wide open. We don't know what the consequences are of of this variation in 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 neural structure. Talk about New Year's resolutions. Right. Right? Just... But anyway, getting to the bears, <laughs> getting to the bears uh, it was known that bears do not lower their body temperature significantly during hibernation. 
So we wanted to see whether or not uh, they had the same patterns of periodic arousals and so forth, because the indication was if you didn't lower the brain temperature too much, you didn't lose all of this neural structure. So mm -hmm. is the function of the periodic arousals to protect the neural structure. So we uh, essentially went to Alaska, worked with friends uh, at the University of Alaska. We got permission from the uh, Alaska Fish and Game to uh, take uh, two of their bears each winter. Okay, but they wouldn't let us take them during the summer. Uh, we had to then go out and find them during the winter. Hmm. So they have these radio collars. You can find them, but you find them in their den. You have to dig into the den. You have to tranquilize the bear. You have to bring it out of the den. <laughs> so you hike, you that hike, you hike sounds a the little... <laughs> you hike through the wilderness with a radio... Well, with, usually with a helicopter. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a helicopter through the wilderness. Right. You find no are there... Are the ca there are there in caves? Or? Well, they're usually in uh, maybe under a root fall or under a bank uh, where there's a hollow, you know. <clears throat> but they're covered in snow at this. They're point. covered in snow, and you know it's not very deep snow. Alaska doesn't get huge amounts of snow, uh, so but they generally go into hibernation when there's a significant snow, so they are covered over. But you can find them with their radio tracking. Uh, that's not terribly hard. And we had a fellow with us from Alaska Fishing Game who was expert in this. And he's the one who would crawl into the den with the a tranquilizer on a stick and poke the bear. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and what happens when you poke and, a sleeping bear? Well, we, we, we were positioned outside the den, one person holding each of his ankles to pull fast if he, <laughs> if he said pull. <laughs> because the bears are not, I mean, of course, they're lethargic, but they're not totally uh, inactive like a ground squirrel when it's in hibernation. Yeah. So we'd bring the bears back to Fairbanks. We then took them into surgery. Uh, we implanted them with EEG electrodes, EMG electrodes, EKG electrodes, uh, uh, thermocouples, and so forth. And then we put them outside in uh, a chamber that we had a cage with a nest box that we had built outside. And the nest box was equipped with all of the antenna wires necessary. And then we could record uh, their EEG, EMG, EKG uh, temperatures all winter long. And we've done this for, I think, probably 10 bears now. Uh, it's an enormous amount of data. Mm -hmm. If you imagine collecting continuous EEG data for six months, I mean, wow. it's a, enormous. So the big problem now is analyzing the data. Mm -hmm. So we've analyzed some of it to make some general statements. But the bottom line is they do not lower their body temperatures below about 33, 34 degrees centigrade. They don't have periodic arousals. They are in sleep during mm -hmm. most of this time. Almost uh, they are cycling between REM and non-REM sleep. And they have no circadian rhythms. The circadian rhythm disappears. Oh. And this makes a lot of sense because mm -hmm. what the circadian clock does in us and other mammals is it wakes us up. Mm -hmm. It, it, it it's a, acts as an alarm clock. It tells us when to come out of sleep. And uh, in an animal that wants to sleep continuously, you have to suppress the circadian influence, the circadian clock. And uh, these animals, they lose their circadian patterns when they uh, enter hibernation. Of course, we don't have data on that because we couldn't take them until they had entered hibernation. But in the spring, you can see the circadian patterns coming back uh, just prior to when they come out of hibernation. And that's triggered by, by the temperature or by light? Well, presumably it's an endogenous cycle. I okay. mean, this is something that's well known in hibernators, just like we have an endogenous clock, we have an endogenous calendar. We mm -hmm. know what time of year it is. At least mm -hmm. these animals do. 
nobody knows where that is in the brain. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows how it works. But the circannual clock, sure. the circannual rhythm runs uh, usually less than 365 days. It's it's better to be early than to be late if you're a seasonal breeder, mm -hmm. for example. Um, but these animals have an internal calendar that tells them you know, when it's time to end hibernation. And for the, the bears, um, they, of course, the, the females, they give birth during hibernation. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, we had one uh, pregnant female uh, in our population, and she did not lower her body temperature until she gave birth. Wait, so she's asleep when she goes into labor? <laughs> she's asleep when she goes into labor. Uh, a bear is born extremely immature. It's it could it could fit on a tablespoon. Oh wow! I mean, it's extremely it's, it's hairless. It it latches onto a nipple, and that's where. It, so it's sort of like kangaroo. It sort of crawls its way up, and right, then right. just latches on. And right. then so the baby, I guess it's not hibernating. It's just sort of. Nursing it, continuously right. for the next however long. Right. But then the, the, the mother uh, essentially then lowers her body temperature to a certain extent. Uh, so, yeah. Wow. That's that's crazy. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah they're, 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 the young are born uh, usually in late February, early March. Wow. Like so if you took one of these Alaskan bears before they entered hibernation and you sent them to Australia for the winter, <laughs> would they still go into hibernation? What you're asking is you're asking uh, how difficult it is to reset the, circa the circannual clock, mm -hmm. and uh, nobody knows. Okay. Uh, I think, if I recall correctly, a long time ago, someone took marmots, uh, groundhogs, mm -hmm. uh, from North America to South America. And uh, the bottom line was that it took them several years, and they they re-entrained to the southern uh, seasons. I I. I yeah, you know, I'm I'm not absolutely certain of that. I just have a vague memory that that, that was done. Mm -hmm. So do you, so is hibernation then? I mean, the way that sleep is sort of beneficial, necessary, we'll die without it. So hibernation isn't necessarily beneficial to these animals. It's in the same way that sleep is, like toward the to the brain and normal body function. Well, you know, the hibernation is essential because it's saving energy. Right. Uh, these animals uh, during the winter they don't have food. Uh, it's very low temperature, so they could not survive uh -huh. unless they turned down their thermostat. But if you look at when they come out of hibernation for each of these periodic arousals, they have the most intense sleep at any other time in their lives. So one of the rationales, uh, one of the hypotheses that has been generated is that essentially uh, this intense sleep is the period of time during which all of these neural connections are being reestablished. Mm. So one argument is that without those neural connections, uh, the cortex is essentially hyperpolarized. You have to have a large number of those excitatory synapses rebuilt mm -hmm. in order to depolarize de uh, the cortex enough to have normal wakefulness. Mm -hmm. So whether or not this is the same as sleep restoration in non-hibernators, don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, definitely there is a relationship between the nature of sleep, at least as measured by the EEG, and uh, the state of the hibernator. Mm -hmm. So so what's the difference between animals who hibernate and those that don't? I mean, obviously bears are not the only animals that live in Alaska. Humans live there, but we don't hibernate. Or... And could we hibernate? you got to have food. Huh. <laughs> they, you know, the difference between the animals that don't hibernate and those that do is they have resources. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether those resources are uh, their own fat, 
mm-hmm. uh, uh, such as in you know whales and, and other marine mammals, or whether they have food available, such as roots and so forth, like gophers mm-hmm. during the winter. Um, just don't you have to have resources? Now, could we hibernate? That's a really good question because NASA has long wondered about how they could send humans to Mars or or even farther. And mm-hmm. the idea is that in order to decrease the amount of resources they'd have to put on the spaceships, they'd put the astronauts in hibernation. So there's been a lot of interest in that. And uh, we do know that uh, one of the things that you can do is you can suppress oxidative metabolism. And if you suppress oxidative metabolism in a mouse, uh, it goes into a state of hypothermia that sort of resembles hibernation. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you could do that in a human or not, um, some people have wondered and have tried. There's actually some effort that has gone on uh, uh, by uh, a guy up at University of Washington, Roth, uh, in using H2S to suppress oxidative metabolism and put uh, animals into a state of torpor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. So would would the humans then be like the ground squirrels who just remember that they're ground squirrels, or would they <laughs> do we have any idea of like the effect that would have on their memory? Um, I suspect it would have a bad effect. Uh-huh. I mean, there are well known uh, consequences of you know uh, hypothermia associated with surgery and so forth. I don't know if it's due to the anesthesia or what, but uh, I can't imagine that a long-term period of hypothermia is going to do anything great for our cognitive capacity. So the astronauts would get to Mars and then not know why they're there (laughs) anymore. (laughs) You just have to have a really good read me. (laughs) Your name is Craig. (laughs) You are on a spaceship. (laughs) It's very red outside and have a good time. Thank thank you, Hal. Yeah, exactly. That's why you need Hal. (laughs) Well, we've been talking about sort of the, the connection between thermoregulation and sleep and circadian rhythms and all this, but you've also been studying thermoregulation um, outside of sleep and in particular have this very interesting technology for assisting thermoregulation during exercise. You call it the glove? The glove. The glove. Can you tell us about the glove? How does that work? We we claim credit for Stanford's football success. Ah. (laughs) Seriously. Uh, This is a one of these adventures in science, you know, that, that is just why we love our, our field. I've always studied uh, how the brain regulates body temperature, and along with my close colleague, Dennis Gron. And uh, one day, a friend of ours who's an anesthesiologist, John Brock Utney, he sort of challenged us. He said, oh, you guys think you know so much about thermoregulation. I bet you couldn't solve a problem we have in the recovery room. You know, patients come into the recovery room, and they're very cold, and they shiver for hours, and it's very difficult to rewarm them. And we said, that's a trivial problem. No, no, (laughs) it's a hard problem. And the reason it's hard is that when you are under anesthesia, you lose heat because Mm -hmm. you're totally vasodilated. And you become hypothermic. And then as soon as you come out of the anesthesia, the hypothermia induces a strong vasoconstriction. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it's hard to get heat into the body. Okay, So we got this idea that if we took a limb, such as an arm or a leg, and we put it in a negative pressure environment, a vacuum, we could pull blood into that limb, heat that limb, and that would heat the rest of the body. So we built a silly system that... Uh, essentially fit over an arm with a wet suit sleeve and and a hospital warming pad and a vacuum pump. And back then you could take something like this over into the recovery room. You couldn't do that today. And uh, 
put it on the first patient in 10 minutes. They were back up to normal. Wow. And we couldn't believe it. Next patient, 8 minutes, then 12 minutes. And it normally would take them two hours mm -hmm. to get these patients back up. So to make a long story short, we discovered that it had nothing to do with the arm. It only had to do with the hand. And then looking into the anatomy of the hand, we found something in the literature that was totally unexplained. And that is that in the palm of the hand, and in other words, in non-hairy skin, you have special blood vessels. And these blood vessels, they shunt the blood from the arteries to the veins bypassing the capillaries. They're called arteriovenous anastomoses. So the obvious function of these is for radiators. So if you're a mammal, you have fur. If you have fur, you can't lose heat over your furred body surface. So you have to have windows or portals for heat loss, and that's mm -hmm. the non-hairy skin. So in these limited surface areas, a huge volume of blood can carry heat to those surface areas and be dissipated to the environment, mm -hmm. right? So even though we don't have fur, we have the same anatomy. We have these same blood vessels. So if you put a hand, the palm of a hand, on a heat sink or a heat source and you apply a slight vacuum, what you do is you increase the capacity of heat exchange across that surface. So we originally used this in the reverse way that evolution had intended it. We used it to heat people. And then when we discovered what the function was, we said, okay, we can use this to, to treat hyperthermia, high body temperature. So we had to have somebody who was hyperthermic to study. So our lab technician, Vin Cal, was a gym rat. <laughs> he would go to the gym every day after work. So we said to Vin, uh, how about working out in the lab? Said, okay, <laughs> yeah, we'll just use that to get you hot. And he liked to do pull-ups. So we had him do repeated sets of pull-ups and, you know, Pull-ups to muscle failure, rest for three minutes, pull-ups to rest, and so forth. And so we'd do 10, 12 sets of pull-ups. Body temperature would go up, and we would then measure how much heat we could extract from him. And then one day after we did this, he went back to the pull-up bar, and he did the same number of pull-ups as in the first set. And we said, holy crow, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. well, what it means is that muscle failure is largely due to the rise in temperature of the muscle. So they're overheating. So if you take that heat out, the muscle just keeps on working. Hmm. And if you just keep the muscle working, you get a huge conditioning effect. So we've had freshman women doing over 800 push-ups. Wow. <laughs> what do you mean by a conditioning effect? A conditioning effect is, you know, you go to the gym, you work out, you get stronger, right? Uh -huh. Okay. So that's a conditioning effect. And when people have routinely go to the gym, they say they're on a plateau. They're not getting any better. Well, what we're doing is getting them off their plateau. Now, this makes good sense evolutionarily because your muscle metabolism, your large dynamic muscles, they can increase their metabolism by an enormous amount, 50-fold. Okay? Hmm. The blood flow through the muscle can, can't come close to matching that. The only way the heat gets out of the muscle is in the blood. Okay? So you literally have the capacity of cooking your muscles. So what you the muscle has to do is to shut down to mm. prevent that and one of the ways that that's possibly done is through the enzymes that are responsible for energy metabolism so pyruvate kinase for example is temperature sensitive you temperature goes up above you know 38 38 5 it shuts down so fuel can't get into the mitochondria so it's it's an adaptive process and what we're doing by extracting the heat is we're uh, avoiding 
that barrier to to muscle performance and if you work the muscle harder the muscle gives you uh, a conditioning effect so is there something particular to the vacuum just make it faster like if i stuck my palms on the ice block would it have a similar effect just slower if you stuck your palms on an ice block it would have the reverse effect Okay. And the reason is that you have a reflex control over those blood vessels. And if it's too cold, they shut down. Uh-huh. Okay. So putting your hand on an ice block wouldn't work. What does the vacuum do? If you remember from your junior level physics, you know, <laughs> uh, there's something called Poissy's law, that the flow through a tube is proportional to the fourth power of its radius. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fourth power? That's huge. <laughs> yeah. So what you're doing with the vacuum is you're putting the radiator of a Mack truck in a Honda. So that's essentially what you're doing to increase the capacity. So we can get about 50 watts out of a hand. Wow. So that's a significant amount of, of, of heat. So you said you take credit for the, the success of the Stanford football team. So the football team uses the yeah, glove then, yeah, I, our, I take our, it. Our, our football team uses it, yeah. And they, they use it predominantly for recovery. You know? uh-huh. So they have it if, it if it's a hot day or they're overheated, they're available under the bench and or during practice, they have them available and they can uh, sort of get a quick recovery mm-hmm. by dumping some heat. So, yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> I remember, I remember have... walking through your lab a, a year or two ago and seeing some very buff people. <laughs> <laughs> you guys holding out on us? I mean, was... <laughs> I mean can we, I mean, is this something that you're, that you're developing for, for people to use? It sounds incredible. Yeah, no, useful. it's available for people to use, yeah. Yeah, it's available. There's a company called Avacor that makes them, avacor.com. So you can you can check it out. And you know, it, it seriously, it has many more, I guess, important applications. So it's used by multiple sclerosis patients. Uh, individuals with MS are very temperature sensitive. Temperature goes up a little bit, they can no longer function. Uh, so this helps them. Uh, we're working now on uh, applications involving migraine headaches. We're working on applications involving menopausal hot flashes. We're working on applications of maintaining patients' temperatures during surgery. We also recently had a little project in which we built systems for military working dogs. Oh. So, <laughs> so if you think of a military working dog, if they're panting, they're not sniffing. Oh. So you want to decrease the, the need for them to pant. So is this also through the paw? Yeah, through the paws. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they wear it in little, little booties. I was thinking it was through oh. the tongue that sounded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing dogs in little booties. Yeah, yeah. yeah they have little booties, yeah. Very cute. Yeah. With the, the, the equipment in the little backpack. It's sort of um, amazing that the you know research program that you've been working on runs from the basic biology of sleep to hibernators and looking at bears and looking at ground squirrels, um, looking at football players. Um, <laughs> and what's next on the menu? I mean, what, what, is, what has been on your mind? What's been bugging you so much that you need to go out and do something crazy recently? <laughs> I don't know. There's more than I can handle right now. <laughs> but I think the bottom line is that I think you should pursue what your, whatever interests you. If, if something really fascinates you, you should just not hesitate to go after it. And uh, that's what I've done mm-hmm. uh, my whole career. I've always just followed my interests. And if I tell you a little story, uh, when I was a postdoc, I worked with a, a very famous old physiologist, uh, Norwegian, by the name of Per Scholander. He's the one who discovered, you know, diving bradycardia. He's the one who discovered how 
water can get to the top of redwood trees. He's the one who discovered why fish don't freeze in the Arctic and, and, and so forth like that. So I was doing an experiment one day, and I was just finishing, and he walked into the lab, and he said, what did you do today? <laughs> so I, I told him what I did, and he was excited. And he said, what are you going to do next? So I said, what are you going to do tomorrow? No, no, no. What are you going to do next? Maybe several months from now, this is, you know, what will we do? He said, no, you don't understand. <laughs> he said, when you climb that mountain, you don't have to get to the top to prove it to yourself. You could stop 10 meters from the top, take a piss, go back down, <laughs> and look for the next mountain. <laughs> it's not the top of the mountain that matters. <laughs> so, so I've always felt, you know, sort of liberated to look for the next mountain. Mm -hmm. That's a good philosophy. Yeah. There is something nice about the top, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when, I must say, when I'm climbing a mountain, I can't stop <laughs> until I get to the top. <laughs> yeah, you can see all the mountains better from up there. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, okay, well, we've got a game, yeah. which we developed in the Top Secret Laboratory, it's completely in-house <laughs> and um, unique to us. It's called Not My Field. Mm -hmm. Basically, we are going to read you the titles of three putative scientific papers mm -hmm. and are going to ask you which of these scientific papers is real out of okay. the three other two the other two of which we completely made up okay um, and we've got three rounds okay. so two out of three is all your sounds cool all you gotta aim for <laughs> mm -hmm. um, Erica do you want to want to start us off I would love to okay so the first question option a Longitudinal analysis of willingness to mimic silly facial expressions in adolescence. Option B, a mathematical model of sentimental dynamics accounting for marital dissolution. Or option C, hiccup contagion, a quantitative analysis of hiccup transfer between affiliates versus non-affiliates. I would say A. A. Okay. Uh, I'm going to read you from the abstract of the real paper. So, marital disillusion is ubiquitous <laughs> in Western societies. It poses major scientific and sociological problems, both in theoretical and therapeutic terms. Scholars and therapists agree on the existence of a sort of second law of thermodynamics for sentimental relationships. Effort is required to sustain love. Love is not enough. <laughs> God, that is a deep paper. Yeah. Okay. So, so one down. You've got two more. You've got two more chances. Here. Oh boy. All right. So here's the next set. So. A, self-reported problematic body odor in dumpster divers. B, a bum deal from wooden toilet seats. Re-emergence of allergic contact dermatitis. These are gross. <laughs> Ants in the pants. The prevalence of insect infestations in denim factories. Oh. <laughs> it's a complete set. <laughs> oh, I, I guess I'd go for ants in the pants. So abstract from the correct one. We report a case series of five patients who were found to have an allergic contact dermatitis, uh. ACD, to their wooden toilet seat. <laughs> patients were presented to our contact dermatitis clinic during a five-year period from 2005 until 2010. I can't believe they didn't realize it. Yeah. Oh, no, it's five. Oh, it's like individual patients each time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In each case, there was a regional 
I can't say this. Eczematous eruption localized to the buttocks and posterior upper thighs with an annular configuration that matched to the shape of the patient's toilet <laughs> I really wish the ends of the pans was true. That, I agree. That, that's I think, pretty funny. I'm, I mean, it may be true. Just because we made it up doesn't mean it doesn't exist. That's true. I'm just not as well read as you are. <laughs> All right. You've got one more chance. Oh, you've, got, you've got another one more question. Okay. Option A is the effect of ale, garlic, and soured cream on the appetite of leeches. Number two, high Scoville spiciness scale ratings generate non-caloric perceived satiation. Or C, you are what you eat, analysis of dietary origins of tissue from human biopsies. Well, I can't imagine you just bring Scoville scale out of the blue, so I'd say the, the Scoville scale. Oh. <laughs> now you you underestimate our okay. interest in, in, in food and drink the science of food and drink. Here's 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 the abstract. The medicinal leech has regained some of its lost popularity by its present use in microsurgery. Sometimes, however, the leeches refuse to cooperate properly. To overcome this problem, doctors in the 19th century used to immerse leeches in strong beer before applying them to the patient. In the 1920s, a deaconess experienced that a little soured cream on the skin would encourage the leech's feeding behavior, and we recently found that they seem to be attracted by garlic. We designed a study to evaluate the effect of these remedies. <laughs> oh, oh, sour cream and garlic yeah. leeches. So I, actually, so I actually really like this paper. I want to read from the end of their paper where basically they, so they find that they are attracted to garlic, but garlic kills them. So it's a, a lethal, <laughs> fatal attraction. <laughs> um, they said, so then they write, the alleged effect of soured cream may have an extrapolation of the deaconess's own preferences, an example of the placebo effect. So they found no <laughs> attraction to sour cream. And they also found that the beer tended to disrupt the leech's normal behavior and made them erratic. <laughs> uh, and so then they conclude, okay. the study provides a reminder of how medical beliefs can stand uncontradicted for decades. We should never forget the necessity of critical research on commonly accepted medical truths. So such I actually, is, yeah, that's actually leeches. True. Yeah, I like this paper. <laughs> really, really the Very good. Yes. Well, I'm 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 sorry, Craig. None of those oh, well. none of those are right, but that's all right because clearly you were focused on important science. So so I I don't get the privilege of getting your voice on my answering machine. No, Unfortunately, not. Not. <laughs> uh, although we can talk afterwards. I think. <laughs> um, this has been a really really fun conversation. It's been great talking about all of this fantastic science. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Craig. Thank you. It was fun. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Erica Senor, Julia Turan, Jordan Sorokin, and myself. You can find all of the past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E, west.org. 